What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush Friday interview edition. Chuck here, and I'm singing, so that means I enjoyed this episode quite a bit. Actually, that's not what that means because I never sing, and I've loved all the episodes. But just trust me, this is a good one. Um, I had Paul from The Office in. Uh, Paul Deckant is one of the uh, great editor, engineer, producers here that works with us. He's been around us for a long time, back when we were still doing video, is what Paul did uh, because he's a filmmaker at heart. And... Um, works in the visual medium more. Um, but like the rest of the crew, they saw the writing on the wall and started doing podcasts so they could keep their job. And uh, But Paul is a filmmaker. He's actually um, finishing up his movie right now that he's been making for a while. Uh, on the sly and, and guerrilla style as an indie filmmaker, I have a lot of respect for Paul for doing that. Um, very, very cool to see um, Paul and, and the rest of the staff who I used to think of as just kids. But honestly, they're all big grown-ups now, and it's happened right before my very eyes. And Paul is just the nicest guy, um, someone whose taste I really think a lot of, and that's why I asked him to be on the show. And he picked Lost in Translation, uh, the Sofia Coppola, a dare I say, new classic, uh, which is also one of my favorite movies. So it was a great pleasure to talk to Paul, and I think you're going to enjoy yourselves. So here we go with Paul Deccant on Lost in Translation. <music> 
I watched this last night for like the, I feel like 10th time, maybe more. Yeah. I fucking love this movie. Me too. I've I've probably seen it about 10 or 12 times. Yeah. It had been a minute for me though. Um, it's one of Emily's favorites too. So she was all in last night. Nice. Uh, she had watched it more recently than me. But uh, it occurred to me that I don't think I've seen this since I had my kid mm. because I got really like moved when he was uh, – and, we'll, you know, this is jumping way ahead. But like in, at that scene where they're laying in bed together and he's talking about having children and how they grow up, you know, all of a sudden they're the most delightful people you've ever met or whatever. And I, I just I, like fucking broke down. I was like, wait a minute. I haven't seen this since I had Ruby. <laughs> Yeah, and that that's a great, probably one of the best scenes in the movie. Oh, man, I think. So good. Yeah. Um, well, it's it, it's interesting too. The uh, that very first shot of the movie of Scarlett Johansson's butt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What a way to open this movie. Yeah, it's so. I do want to talk about that shot actually, because yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very bold way to open a movie. Yeah, and yet it's also a very subtle shot. I think. Uh huh. And um, in doing some research on it, I read that um, Sofia Coppola, director Sofia Coppola, was inspired by this artist named John Kayser, mm. who paints, if you Google him, basically all the images that come up are paintings of, butts. of women's butts <laughs> in like lingerie. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting because those images are very sexualized. Oh, his in, are? Intentionally. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas the, the shot that opens the movie yeah. is somehow... I don't know if it's completely desexualized, but it doesn't feel like that's the intent. It feels much more like intimate um, mm-hmm. and just uh, like you're seeing just somebody laying in their underwear. Yeah. And she's also kind of uh, – it's a beautiful shot and that mm-hmm. sounds so creepy <laughs> but has nothing to do with the butt. She's also setting up sort of a, a color palette there I think. Yes. Because that same pink kind of comes in a lot throughout the movie. Um, most notably that I can remember is when she's built those uh, mobiles in her room, yeah, in her hotel room. The because, pale pink, yeah, yeah, because everything is so cold and sort of stark in that hotel. Like, there's I've, I've been to a couple of like high end hotels that are just so unwelcoming, mm-hmm. and I feel like that really served this movie to have them sort of in this expensive prison. Almost. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And she's doing uh, everything she can, Scarlett Johansson, or Charlotte, I guess, to Mm -hmm. try and bring a little color into that, like, white room. Yeah, and I think one of my favorite things about Sofia Coppola, this movie and her others, is her use of color and color palettes and just visual aesthetics, and she Mm -hmm. has a great eye for. Um, But one one other interesting sort of anecdote about that shot of Scarlett Johansson's butt (laughs) is... um, in interviews, uh, Sofia Coppola said when they were shooting that, mm-hmm. that Scarlett Johansson was very apprehensive about doing that shot. And Sofia Coppola said to her, I'm going to try these under this under- pair of underwear on uh-huh. <laughs> and kind of lay there. And afterwards, if you still feel uncomfortable, uh-huh. we we won't do the shot. Yeah. And so Sofia Coppola tried them on and f- modeled them in front of Scarlett Johansson. And after that, Scarlett was like, okay, I'll mm-hmm. do it. And that's just, I think, points to something about this being a movie from directed by a woman, right? Who, you know, if a, obviously if the, a man directed it, you probably wouldn't have that, that sort of, yeah. You know. And it would certainly probably, you know, get crushed if yes. it was released today. Of Absolutely. <laughs> and we'll talk about some of that stuff too, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it goes right. Her use of music, you know, we'll talk about for sure. But 
that very first music cue of uh, Death in Vegas when he's – it's such an efficient setup. And I, I've talked a lot on the show about efficiency of setup of character and plot and motivations. And this is one of the best, mm-hmm. like almost dialogue or at least exposition-free setups. In that first like five or six minutes, you know everything you need to know about both of them. Yeah. Um, because he's bored in this cab, stranger in a strange land. He's getting – it feels like almost assaulted by all these people welcoming him. And he's being very kind, but you can tell he's a man out of place. He's taller than everyone. The shower's too low. <laughs> uh, and then her with with uh, Giovanni Ribisi, um, a.k.a. Spike Jones, supposedly. I, I, and I think Giovanni Ribisi is maybe the unsung MVP of this movie. He's, <laughs> he's just so good. so good as kind of that. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, he's not – gross. He, he's not a total asshole, but he's just kind of – Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. What is it my brother used to call those guys, L.A. guys? <laughs> there was a name that he used to – to say for something that they used to say a lot, like, how you doing or something like that. I can't remember. But he's one of those guys. Yeah. And the way he's – and we'll get to the scenes where he's just like pawing all over her and it's just – and she's grossed out by him. And and then the way he's like, babe, I got to go. I yeah. got to go. You yeah. Know? <laughs> like scattered – like the scattered artist or yeah, whatever. Yeah, totally. But you know everything about both of them. Like she's lost. They're both lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was – it really hit me last night – even though I've seen this movie so many times, to when I watch them for these shows, you really study it. Um, it's interesting how they're at the same. They're at the same place in life at two different stages in life. Like she's young and doesn't know what she wants to do, and he has hit that point where he's been through his whole career, and now he feels stuck and doesn't know what to do. Absolutely, and I think watching it this time for me, uh, every time I watch this movie, I always sort of. I get nervous and I'm like, is this going to hold up? Is this going to be as good as I always remembered it? And it yeah. always is. Yeah. But uh, what what stood out to me watching it this time was how one of the big themes of this movie is just being stuck in mm-hmm. a marriage for both of them. Yeah. At, like you said, at different points and how they kind of both can relate to that and they kind of get something from each other in their brief week in Tokyo. Yeah. And it, I like to think that maybe after their time together – they kind of go back to their lives mm-hmm. and maybe it's like they've recharged their batteries a little bit yeah. and maybe things will be a little bit better in their marriage. I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's a little too optimistic. But Well, <laughs> we'll certainly unpack like what happens after they embrace at the end because mm-hmm. this is one of those movies where it's not just like, oh, well, that's over. Like you can't help but think about these characters and their stuckness. And she even says literally in that in that same scene at the end, she – literally says out loud, I'm stuck. Yeah. And I don't remember her saying that. And last night I was like, oh my God, she that's the, that's the whole movie right there. Yeah. Is she stuck? And Emily and I had a great, um, not debate, but just discussion over whether, like how much she loves her husband or like, does she want to leave him? And her contention is that like, yes, she does love him, but it feels like all of a sudden she doesn't know who he is. Yeah. I, I I would agree with that, and I think she's hoping to sort of get something more from him, especially in this time, their time in Tokyo, mm-hmm. and he's not giving it. And then, of course, when Anna Faris's uh, ditzy movie so star great. enters the picture, who, AKA Cameron Diaz, right? Yes, yes, supposedly. Uh, 
that just pulls her or pulls him further away from her. And you can see there's a great scene where he's about to like run out of the hotel room to go to work where he gives her this kiss, kind of mm-hmm. just like meant to be just like, I'll see you later, babe. Mm-hmm. But she, the way she sort of latches on and just wants that intimacy. Yeah. You can tell she's really at a crossroads with not knowing where she's going to go yeah. with this marriage. Yeah. And marriage. And I feel like, uh, so what does she have a philosophy degree? We Like, what do yeah. we actually know about her? She has a philosophy degree mm-hmm. and she's not working. She's not working. Uh-huh. Uh, she says she grew up in New York. Okay. And that she moved to LA when they, her and John, her husband got married. Okay. And how she feels. That's yeah. when she's, uh, laying in the bed with Bill Murray. Right. He asks, where'd you grow up? And, and all well, that. So much happens in that scene. Yeah. A lot of, yeah, a lot of actually exposition as well yeah. that you don't even think about because it's done so well. But, uh, yeah, so she lives in L.A. now, mm-hmm. and she's not really an L.A. person like her husband is. Right. She's much more of that sort of uh, East Coast academic, maybe, uh-huh. is the way I kind of read yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, same. Well, she went to Yale, right? Yeah, she went to Yale. Because so, he yeah. takes a dig at her. Yeah. Not everybody went to Yale, you know? Yeah. To make everyone feel so stupid. <laughs> yeah, and in that scene, like, he, he actually kind of has a point. No, he totally does. Like, you know, we're not totally on her side there. Right. She is kind of sort of turning up her nose at uh-huh. at somebody who's not as smart as her. Yeah, but she also, you also sort of get it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It, it's a very subtle film, I think, and like there are many ways to read it, and I love that she doesn't, I just think Sofia Coppola's great. I know she gets a lot of shit from people, mm-hmm. and I never have quite gotten that, because I, I've, I've loved all her movies, loved Virgin Suicides. Yes. Loved this. Um, loved Marie Antoinette. Yeah. Uh, loved Somewhere. Me too. Yes. Uh, l- liked Bling Ring a lot. That's probably my least favorite, but I've only seen it once. And Same I want to, I want to revisit it. Same I was... here. We were just saying that last night. Yeah. Like, we need to see that movie again. Yeah. Did you see The Beguiled? I did. Uh, that's probably my least favorite. Yeah. I like what she did there, but I know that movie is problematic for a lot of reasons too. Right, yeah. So it's hard not to bring that in there. Um. I don't know, man. I think she's great. She won a Best uh, Screenplay Award for this. Yeah. And was nominated for a director and picture, too. And, yes, and Bill Murray was uh, at the Oscars nominated for Best Actor. Right. Didn't win. Yeah, who uh, won that year? Yeah. I actually looked this up. It was uh, Sean Penn for Cold Mountain, I think. Cold Mountain. Is that right? Or, no, sorry, Mystic River. Oh. <laughs> I get those two confused. <laughs> it's either a Cold Mountain or a Mystic River. <laughs> uh, which I, I haven't seen, so I don't... Have you seen uh, that? Yeah, Mystic River's great, and Sean yeah. Penn's always great. I don't know, though. Bill Murray so good in this. I mean, this is the role of his, his career. In yeah. A, in a career that's had many great roles. Yeah, you know? and it feels like this is him in a lot of ways. Mm. Like, uh, especially in that, you know, again, that bedroom scene where he's talking about his marriage mm-hmm. and how it used to be fun. Uh, and then the kids came and she doesn't come around to set anymore. And like, um, I know that Bill Murray has had a lot of regrets in real life as like a working father that's been away for too long. Um, and it's hard not to think, but it's probably some of Sophia Coppola in there too, you know? Yeah. He's definitely bringing a lot of himself to that, to the role and to that scene in particular. Yeah. And the choice to make... (laughs) The choice to make the reason he's there a big actor doing a Japanese commercial is just perfect. So, because we know what that means. Yeah, it's it's great. I I was just reading about this about the idea of American celebrities or actors doing ad advertisements in other countries, especially oh, yeah. Japan and other countries in Asia. It's huge. It's huge, and especially back in the day, you would see this a lot because 
they didn't want to do these ad campaigns in America because right. they were worried about it would hurt their image or they yep. would be seen as selling out. Mm -hmm. But they could go to Japan and do it and nobody would ever see it except yeah. people in Japan. Exactly. And so, it's so great. You know, Clooney's done it. Brad Pitt's done it. Brad Pitt's done it. When, so I've been to Japan a couple times. Uh -huh. Last time I was there, I saw Tommy Lee Jones's face everywhere. <laughs> no way. And he was doing this ad campaign for – it was called Boss and it was this sort of uh, canned coffee. Uh-huh that you would see in vending machines and stuff. And you see, just see Tommy Lee Jones' face on all these vending the machines. And it was just like, what? I, like, he what's made going... millions of dollars for that. Yes, and also the budgets for these ad campaigns yeah. in Japan are huge. So when when uh, Bill Murray says in the movie, I'm getting pay, paid $2 million yeah. to endorse a whiskey, that's not unrealistic oh, that no. they would pay him that much. No, for... that shit, that might be on the low side. Yeah, yeah, you know? totally. Um, where did you go in Japan? So... I've been to Japan three times, actually. Man, that's great. Uh, the main reason is because my older brother lived there for five years. Oh. And so he taught, he was teaching English in Japan. Uh -huh. And so I went and visited him a couple times. And so I've, I've kind of been all over. I've been to Tokyo. Wow. Uh, Kyoto, Hiroshima, yeah. Osaka, Nagasaki. Is it amazing? It's great. I love, I would go back in a heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Tokyo is great. But I actually love all the other areas of Japan more. I've heard Kyoto is awesome. Kyoto is beautiful. Yeah. It was the ancient capital of Japan before Tokyo. Yeah. And uh, Tokyo is great, but it's also kind of just like another gigantic city. Sure. Uh, that being said, though, in Lost in Translation, I love the way she shoots Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, just that, probably seeing that movie when I was younger made me want to go to Japan more than anything. Yeah. I mean, there's so many beautiful shots of the city. And um, it's interesting that I feel like he... He's in that hotel. He's hotel bound until he meets her. He's mm -hmm. not going out. He's going to the pool. He's going to the bar every night and doing his various obligations. But when he meets her, the world literally opens up and they go out and they have that big fun night, yeah. which we'll go over in detail for sure um, later. But uh, she's out and about. She's going on her, her adventures. She is making an effort to sort of yeah. see the city a little bit. It's on her, her journey, I feel like, though. I feel like she's... She's not just sightseeing, you know. It feels bigger than that. Absolutely, yeah. And and she even says, you know, I went to this shrine today and there was these monks chanting and I didn't feel anything. And I think she's— Is that when she breaks down and cries? On the phone with her uh, yeah, friend yeah. from home. Yeah, and it, it's a great scene, but she's definitely trying to get something out of this trip yeah. for herself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, it's just such a funny movie, too. Like, mm. it's easy to overlook— the funny scenes like the Santori commercial yeah. and the Santori photo shoot. Absolutely. It's just so funny, man. Yeah. It's so great. That director, when he's, he'll go off for like a minute straight and she'll be like, you know, the translator will say like, you know, more intensity. And he's like, what? Is that all he said? Because it feels like he's saying a lot more than that. Yeah, it's and The great. way he calls action and camera rolling everything, he's like <laughs> screaming it. It's just so good. It's great because, uh, you know, if you, you can look up online what, the translation of what the director is oh, actually really? saying. People have translated it. and um, But basically, it's a very real situation uh -huh. because the there's the interpreter who's translating for, for Bill Murray and for the director. Yeah. And the way she's sort of asking Bill Murray's questions to the director is in this very polite, very formal way, which mm -hmm. is why the sentences get sound five times as long. Right. And so Bill Murray's question might be, should I turn from the left or to the right? <laughs> that was all he needed and she's to probably asking the director, you know, uh, Mr. Bob Harris has a question for you. Right. He would like to know <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you think it would be better for him to turn from the left or from the right. And what do you think is the best? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah just draw it out. <laughs> you know. And just Murray is so 
funny in that scene. Like so much, of, I didn't, I didn't do a ton of research on this on the background, but mm-hmm. uh, about what was improv and what wasn't. You sort of feel it when it's happening. I think in the movie. Yes. Um. Obviously, things like the the hospital waiting room scene. Yeah. You know, are improv. Oh, totally. Um, but Emily last night was like, "Did she hurt her foot in real life?" <laughs> she was like, "I bet you anything, she got really got hurt." And they decided to shoot all this hospital stuff. And I was like, "I bet that wasn't all made up." That so I can speak to this a little bit. Okay, good. Uh, I've read the script actually. Oh wow! The script you can find it online. Yeah. If you just Google it. Uh. The script is a very loose script compared to most film scripts. Oh. Uh, the the toe thing where she hurts her toe is in the script. Okay. Uh, but s- many of the scenes in the script, there might be one or two scripted lines of dialogue. And then in the, in the actual movie, you can tell Bill Murray especially sure. is just riffing. Yeah. Uh, but there's other scenes where it's great where in the script, like when they go eat, uh, they go eat sushi. Uh-huh. And the line in the script just says, they eat sushi, he makes her laugh. Right. And then well, that's all it says. Well, you've got Bill Murray, like, yeah. why script too much, like, exactly. comedy for him? And, and You're not going to write jokes for him. Yeah, and, and Sofia Coppola said she wrote the part for Bill Murray. Yeah. And she wouldn't have made the movie if he wasn't going to agree to do it. Right. Which, I mean, yeah. you can't imagine anyone else in this role. No, of course not. Um, and for those of you listening uh, that don't know this, it's I'm sure you know this, but Bill Murray very famously does not have an agent. And the way he works is there is a phone number. Um, I don't even know if it's a cell phone number. I get feeling like it's a landline. Some, I read somewhere it's like an 800 number. <laughs> it is some <laughs> some phone number, and it's not even widely distributed. So, like, to even get this phone number uh, is tough. And then you call this number, and you leave a message saying what you who you are and what the project this is. And Bill Murray hears that and makes a decision on whether or not to call you back. And that is how... He fucking works. And that's a very... How great is that? Unorthodox way of working. Like, how great is that? Yeah. And so, and so for this movie, I read that um, Sofia Coppola tried to track him down. She called the number. Yeah. She couldn't track him down. Eventually, she enlisted. And this is... So, oh, well, I'm granted, this was back then, but it's still Francis Ford Coppola's daughter. Right, yeah. Like, she's, she's connected. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, eventually, she enlisted Wes Anderson to help her. Mm-hmm. Wes, who had, at this point, directed Murray in uh, Rushmore okay. and Tenenbaums. Yeah. So they were, they were probably already good friends. Sure. And eventually th- through this, through him, through something, she tracked him down. Right. She met him. She pitched him on the movie. Yeah. And he agreed to do the movie. hmm But he never signed a contract. So he just gave her like- a, Oh, a, I think I heard that. A gentleman's agreement saying, I'll do it. I'll be there. And in fact, they didn't know if he was going to show up right. until he like landed in Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. And I, I read somewhere that Sofia Coppola was freaking out about this, and she talked to Wes Anderson, and Wes basically calmed her down and said, "He'll be if there." Bill, if Bill says he'll, he's <laughs> right. going to do it, he'll do it. <laughs> oh man, which is just great. Yeah, that's pretty great, man. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. 
I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Another thing I thought was so funny and so appropriate was uh, her use of the home renovation going on back in stateside as sort of just a vehicle and as, as a bit of symbolism, I think, Yeah, of his detachment, like... He's getting these faxes in the middle of the night. Uh, did you notice his wife's stationary, by the way? No. <laughs> it would come through, and his wife's name, I think, was... Uh, Lydia. Was it Lydia? Lydia, Lydia Harris. Yeah. But it says at the top of the station, stationary, Lydia Harris, and it has a picture of that um, optical illusion of the old lady, young lady. Oh. <laughs> of like, which is it? And that's her stationary, that's which great. is so, it's such a beautiful little minute touch yeah. of like art direction on this movie. That's great. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he's getting these, uh, these carpet samples and shit or tile samples in the mail and these decisions he has to make. And it really just sort of, for some reason, makes that disconnect so much more real and mundane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, he comes, and I, I've, Emily and I are super connected, but like when I was in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to not feel like you feel further away. Absolutely. Especially the, the time difference. The time it makes it difference. impossible to really communicate. I'm yeah. Sure. Because he comes home like drunk from that night out yeah. and she very specifically mentions breakfast. Yeah. She's feeding the kid breakfast. And I've been there and known that like, fuck man, I'm having a hard time connecting with Emily from Australia. Yeah. Because I'm having this big adventure. She's at home with with Ruby and we're tight and it was still like uh, something we had to overcome. And you know, it's just for a week and a half, but like you really felt that, that in this marriage that, you know, and he has that talk when he's drunk about the tile. That's just so like, <laughs> it's the saddest scene in the movie. I think. Yeah. You and, know, the burgundy one, you were just so right. Like wasn't even close. And he's like falling asleep and oh he's drunk. My God, and it's so sad. He's like, I was listening to this great music. I got to find out what that music was when I was out tonight. I'll, yeah. I'll and like, I want to start eating more like Japanese style. Oh my gosh. And yeah. then she's just like, yeah, I'm glad you're having a good time. Yeah. It's just and, such a sad scene. And, you know, in some respects, we're meant to sort of empathize with 
with Bob, sure. you know, and she's just like, he couldn't care less about the color of the tiles and all this stuff. But it doesn't put us entirely on his side because like you get why his wife is, yeah. is feeling that way. Like you're off. I have to go. I have to stay here and, and do the work of I the know. marriage while we you get never to go see off. Her. Yeah. And you get to go off gallivanting to yeah. another country and talk about how it's changing you and you want to eat healthier. And it's. And he's going out with this young girl. Yeah. Like <laughs> we'll, we'll get into the sexuality or lack of. Yeah. Um, well, fuck, let's talk about it now. Because so, Emily and I talked a lot about it. Yeah. And I think that may be what the movie's about in a lot of ways. So for me, rewatching it the other night, the biggest thing that stood out to me maybe was it's a lot less platonic than I remembered. In the sense that there's yeah. a lot of, I, I think, a lot of s- sexual tension there. Obviously, they don't act on it. What do you think? Man, I was going back and forth. Like, we, I think we both agreed that they're friendship was what mattered to them sure yeah and like i don't think anyone in the audience was like oh like they're gonna bone right yeah (laughs) it's gross to even think about i think because they they seem like they needed each other as friends but watching it i agree like watching it last night it was way more flirty than i remember Mm -hmm. uh i don't know man it landed somewhere between like father daughter and it never felt predatory no. He's always very respectful. Yeah. Um, but in 2018, it's a different lens than 2004. Yeah, sure. Of a man in power. Um, I don't know, man. I, I think... They kissed. Yeah, they kissed. I think for me, it's they, they seem to both realize that there's a little unspoken tension, but they both sort of have made this decision that they're not going to... Yeah. To let it go any further than that. I agree. And and the movie and the relationship is all the better for it. And I think they probably feel better as people for it. Yeah. They're, we're not going to be like everyone else who might be in this situation. Yeah. And, it, and it, it took a change. Like, it feels very platonic until he sleeps with the lounge singer. Right. And then yeah. from that moment on, she's clearly a little jealous mm-hmm. and treats him a little differently. Yeah. And they have that horrible lunch together. Yeah. But then they, it was almost like their first little fight, and then later that day they see each other. Oh, no, at the uh, fire alarm. The fire alarm goes off in the and middle of the night. And she's just like, God, that lunch. Yeah. What a bad lunch. Which is a great way to reconcile. I yeah, think. I think they both felt kind of silly. It seemed like there was an understanding there of like, yeah, you were kind of jealous, and he was a bit, a bit embarrassed, I think. Sure, yeah. Of having, and ashamed of having slept with that, that loud singer. Yeah. <laughs> He's great, by the way. <laughs> I love Perfectly the, uh, her walking, he wakes up. And he just hears her singing Midnight at the Oasis and, like, spraying perfume and shit. It's so great. But uh, just just uh, one other thought on that is uh, after they sort of reconcile and they're hanging out at the bar that night and they say how they don't want the night to end. And then yeah. they're in the elevator together. Yeah. And he's going to go to his room. She's going to go to her room. And the elevator stops. The door's open. And they give each other that sort of polite kiss yeah, where yeah. It's, it's meant to be on the cheek, but it's very close to the lips. Yep. And you both – you can very much sense – that they are very aware of what's ha- like uh, of how that kiss is going down, and then of course they take so long that the door's shut, and yeah. he misses his floor. Right, and then they open for her floor, and then they kind of repeat the polite kiss again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I would, I would, I would argue that there's definitely some tension there. Yeah, and it's um, even if that is what it's about, like that that's real, and those mm-hmm. sexual politics are palpable yeah. in real life. Uh, the age disparity is what makes it a thing. Um, 
I don't know, man. It, it's a it's a movie that, and that's what I love about it is every time you see it, you can kind of think something different about it. Yeah, and I think it kind of it lives in some of those ambiguities for sure of of not just if there's sexual tension or not, but just everything about the movie kind of lives in that ambiguous area where you can you can read into it what you want. Yeah, based on what you're bringing to the film. I think. Yeah, but even even with the ambiguity, there's. Even seeing it again last night, there was never a feeling of like, oh, well, this is a, a Hollywood star that is looking to move on this young girl. No, no, I, I agree. And, you know, especially the way they f- sort of first have a real conversation down at the bar uh, where he's there drinking. They, he can't sleep. She comes down and she sits next to him. When they first meet? When they first have a, their first conversation. Yeah, the, yeah, 30 minutes in, man, that first yeah. plot point. I love the that 3 X structure is so great. I yeah. always look at my watch. I'm like, yep, 30 minutes. <laughs> But but it's great, too, because that's their first conversation, and it never feels, uh, especially there, there's nothing beyond just sort of them commiserating about feeling out of place and not uh-huh. being able to sleep. And that way you can sort of, especially when you're traveling, I feel like it's easy to really connect with a stranger. Yeah. Because you're both For sure. in a, a situation you're not used to, and it's easy to sort of open up to somebody uh-huh. you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and especially with them being in Japan, like this would have been a different movie than if they were L.A. people just in New York for the week. Absolutely, um, absolutely. The the setting was so key. Mm-hmm. And Sofia Coppola, to me, is so like, she's one of the masters at evoking a tone and a feeling of a place uh, without dialogue. And mm-hmm. I just, I don't know, man. I, th- I think a lot of her, uh, I think a lot of her talents as a filmmaker. I think she's not very obvious. No, yeah. It's it's really funny the way you said that, because in my little notes here, I wrote, Coppola is a master at capturing a mood. <laughs> That's exactly what I wrote. Well, hey, we're both right then, right? <laughs> yes. Um, if we're, well, well, we should talk about funny scenes a little more. Um, another great scene. And these funny scenes don't advance the story. I think they're just in there to sort of, again, stranger in a strange land when, mm-hmm. they, when that, <laughs> I guess she's a sex worker or a, a masseuse. Yeah. Like what she was sent there by somebody to please him? <laughs> yeah, uh I, I, Or did she just find him? I think she was sort of sent there by maybe one of the <laughs> the the client the exec. Santori people? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh that and scene she's is so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's meant to I, I don't know how that experience is meant to play out uh-huh. if it's I don't know if she's actually meant to sleep with the guy or right. just sort of give him a sort of sensual massage and f- <laughs> flirt with him or what. Yeah. yeah, and that was such a weirdly specific thing. It made me think that that Sofia Coppola heard that story, or maybe Bill Murray told a story about it or something. Yeah, I there, think, there were a couple of scenes like that. It was like this has probably happened. Yeah, a lot of it feels like it's based on real experience, either Sofia Coppola or stuff she heard, or right. or uh, maybe stuff from her dad. Because uh, oh, sure, there I, I've I've read that some of this stuff was based on well, even just going to Japan to shoot a Suntory whiskey ad. I believe. Francis Ford Coppola maybe did that. Oh, really? Yeah. But um, but yeah, that scene, it makes me laugh, but it is one of those scenes where it, it's a little uncomfortable. The whole lit my stockings thing. Yeah. In, and we'll get into this as well, but sort of the... Well, let's talk about it now. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So the pro- the, this movie is problematic in some ways. It is problematic. And it when it came out, it was a pretty big hit with American critics, but uh-huh. a lot of the Japanese critics did not like the movie because of the way it portrayed the Japanese characters in that they argued that 
you know, it was very stereotypical, maybe at best stereotypical and at worst flat out racist. Yeah. I mean, there is a thing of like the Far East being weird and exotic yes. and crazy. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, it's just us and the way we live. Right. And you shouldn't look at everything through Western eyes. We're not weird because we eat these things that you think are strange. Like that's an American way of looking at things. Absolutely, yeah. And and other writers, critics in the years since have written, American critics too, have written about how, about these problematic aspects. So it's it's very much there. And I would never sort of disagree with somebody who yeah. uh, brought this up because sure. I think it's a valid criticism, criticism of the movie. Yeah. And I think, you know, in some sense, the film is from the point of view of Bob and Charlotte mm-hmm. and their experience. And so there is some truth to the idea of this culture shock that they're experiencing mm-hmm. where everything feels so different. Yeah. And I think that's a very valid thing, especially going to a country that's so different yeah. like Japan. But where I think the movie maybe falters a little bit is that it never sort of critiques that worldview. Mm-hmm. And uh, it never sort of s- separates itself from that very specific point of view. Yeah. Where it, it never sort of relativizes their the way that the, the fact that they're looking at this country through Western eyes uh-huh. and, and maybe, you know, how do the Japanese feel about these Westerners coming into the country? Right. You know? Yeah. But also, like, now that I think about it, it's not like she goes off on all these adventures to all these just beautiful, peaceful places. And it's such, first of all, it's just such a great contrast as a filmmaker between mm-hmm. that and the city. Um, there's these gorgeous, slow, quiet, peaceful things that she does. Mm-hmm. Um, but she never comes back and was like, this thing is so fucked up. It was so weird. And they were like, <laughs> like, I feel like she's, there's a lot of reverence on her part sure, yeah. and genuine interest. So it doesn't feel like she's, um, it doesn't feel like she's like this, this place is so strange. I feel right. like she kind of loves it in some ways. Yeah. And uh, I would, yeah, I would argue that there's nothing sort of malicious in the film. Yeah. From I agree. Sophia Coppola, like. It's clear that, you know, Sofia Coppola had, had been to Japan many times and a lot of this was based on her experiences in Japan. Yeah, parts of it feel like a love letter to Japan. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but it is true that, you know, these two characters are only in Tokyo for a week. And so right. they're never going to get more than sort of a tourist's mm-hmm. impression of Tokyo and of Japan. Yeah, very surface level. Yeah. Uh, but I would also argue that, you know, the criticisms about the way the, the movie portrays the Japanese people, again, valid criticisms, but I also think it's important to remember that, you know, film, it's a visual medium, and Mm -hmm. so much of the argument Coppola is making here is through her visuals, Mm -hmm. and so the movie shoots Tokyo in such a loving way, Mm -hmm. and I think especially those scenes where they have their night out, where they go to the party, where they sing karaoke, and suddenly the city seems transformed because suddenly Bob and Charlotte are opening themselves up to the city. Yeah, yeah. And for the first time, yeah. they're together and it's so vital and like energetic and real. Yeah, and so you know, it's the movie sort of opens itself up then because the characters are opening themselves up to Tokyo. Right. And so suddenly this this city that felt cold and oppressive uh-huh. feels warm and welcoming and yeah. a place they kind of fall in love with. Yeah, and uh if you think about it, the only way that happens is through the locals. Mm-hmm. Like she meets up with their friends uh, and and her husband's friends. Yeah. And 
have like this great experience and anyone who's ever had a um one of those great long nights out yeah. in, a, in a city that you've never been to with people you've never hung out with like I've had those nights mm-hmm. where you you go to fucking five bars yeah. and you end up at someone's apartment at four in the morning on their roof smoking pot yeah. and like made these like great new best friends and they, they get separated through a lot of this night yeah. and are doing their own thing and I've had those moments and it's like that's the best kind of travel experience you can have and they could only I feel like he could only get that through her mm-hmm. because again he was he was swimming in the pool and going to the bar she was getting out and about but there are also so many shots of the isolation yeah for both of them that one I mean maybe my favorite shot in the movie although there's like two or three that are competing for that <laughs> but when she's sitting in the window ah uh, yes and the handheld camera is just sort of quietly moving around her as she's just staring at that just miles and miles and miles of city. Yeah, it's great. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous and um yeah, it's the cinematography's beautiful. What was your course. favorite shot? Do you, does one uh jump out? Ah, uh, that's a good question. I I do love cuz there are multiple shots of her sitting in the window. Yeah. <laughs> uh during the day and at night. Mm-hmm. Probably all of those shots kind of together. Yeah. are are some of my favorites. I um, forgot how young she was too cuz she's such a big star now. Yeah. Um, she was 17 when they filmed this. Really? Yes. She was 17. Oh, wow. Because that's weird because usually you go yeah. like older plays younger. And she's playing probably somebody in their mid-20s. Yeah, I felt I like she was probably 23 or 24. Yeah. Somewhere in there. But uh, yeah, Sofia Coppola cast her after, I don't know, seeing her in something. Well, it had to have been either Ghost, Ghost World, World or Men Who Knew Too Little. Yeah, probably. I think those were probably only a couple of the things she had done at that point. Yeah, but uh, it's it's... It's crazy, too, because she feels, I think, you know, part of it is Scarlett Johansson has kind of a deeper voice. Yeah. And she definitely uses that in this movie. Yeah. To, and she just feels a little bit older, you know. Yeah. And she's just, um, like, it's easy to get a crush on her, even as, like, a friend crush. Yeah. Um, in this movie, because she's sweet and friendly. And for him, like, it contrasts well with that, that great scene in the beginning with the, the dicks at the bar the business <laughs> yeah. dicks that are like, oh, you're Bob Harris and blah, 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 blah. And we're, we're here on a whatever a fucking convention or something. And <laughs> he's just like, he can't get out of there fast enough. Yeah. But he sees an ally in her from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like there's this unspoken connection. Before they even meet at the bar, remember, they lock eyes. In the elevator. Well, no, they lock eyes across the bar. That's and, right, yeah. And just sort of like yeah, that's right. acknowledge one another in a friendly way. Yeah, and, and it's great too that... But in the elevator as well. Yeah, it's funny too. I always forget that aside from the opening shot of Scarlett Johansson's butt, yes. the movie for the first probably 10 minutes or so just stays with Bill Murray mm-hmm. and you don't really come back to her yeah. for a little while in the movie. And again, they don't meet until, like you said earlier, about 30 minutes in. Yeah. Well, you, I love those stories too where... Uh, I've seen this so many times now, it's hard to remember the first time, but uh, I do kind of remember when you're you're watching the story play out in parallel, knowing that they're going to meet. And I love that, though, because it's just like, here's this guy, here's this young woman, uh, they're both in the same place, and they're converging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is that, what's that going to look like? Are they going to jump in bed together? No, because no. I don't think they need that. They, they need something more than that. Right. Like this is all—it was almost like an emotional affair, yeah. If that makes yeah. sense, which is a thing. Like I've I've heard other people say stuff like that. Like 
I had an emotional affair. Like it never got physical, but I'm, I had it's just as deep of a of a cheat almost than having sex with someone. Yeah, maybe more so. Yeah, you could you could say that because, you know, uh, you know, if somebody cheated and had sex with somebody, you could sort of be like, oh, it meant nothing to me. It was just right. one little thing. But where if you meet somebody and really, and really have really connect, connect <laughs> it's a, it's much more complicated because you it's your emotions are much more tied up in it. Yeah, I'm sure. yeah. I also get the, that um, one great scene in the middle of the night when Scarlett Johansson wake, you know, Giovanni Ribisi is laying there, kind of mouth breathing and half snoring. <laughs> And she wakes him up and he, again, just sort of grapples her yeah. and, you know, almost puts her in a chokehold and immediately is back asleep. And she just, you know, she has to wrangle out of that. Mm-hmm. And that's just so emblematic of where they are, you know? Yeah. It's like yeah. She needs this connection with him. And, he, you know, even in the middle of the night, he doesn't know what to do except just like hold her tight. Yeah. yeah. You know, he can't talk to her about anything. It's very sad. He's always talking about himself. <laughs> yeah. He's so narcissistic. Yeah. Oh, man. It's kind of depressing. It's very but, depressing. Yeah. But also, he's so funny, too. Like, as he's such a caricature. Yes. <laughs> I love him. And uh, I think you mentioned earlier, but based on Spike Jones, Right. Supposedly. Supposedly who uh, Spike Jones, the filmmaker who was married to Sofia Coppola at the time. Right. Oh, that's right. They were married. I they, thought they just were together. They, but were, they married, were married. And I, I just looked this up. They divorced in 2003, shortly after the movie came out. Uh <laughs> uh, and so I think, yeah, many people oh. have said that his character is based on Spike Jones, and I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. Yeah, and Anna Ferris is so funny. Oh, yes. I mean, she just nails that person, that that person that's like, oh, my God, I have B.O., I stink so bad, and everyone says I'm anorexic. I'm like, thank you, but <laughs> I eat so much junk food. And then later when she's singing at the piano yes. bar, it's just so that off-key. is such a character, Yeah, like such a real person. Mm-hmm. And if it is Cameron Diaz. Um, I wonder how she feels about that. Yeah. It's a pretty big pot shot. I know. You know? Also, when she's doing the press conference about her fake action movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Midnight Velocity. <laughs> and that, that it's, with, it? it's an action movie with Keanu Reeves. Is that what she says? She's, yeah, she said, I love working with Keanu. Oh, that's right, that's right. We both right. have two dogs. Yeah. We both live in L.A. <laughs> and uh, if you watch the closing credits of the movie and the special thanks, Keanu gets a special thanks. Oh, really? Yeah. Just for like that little joke? Yeah, I'm sure she probably, Coppola probably like said, hey, is it okay if I mention you? And he's probably oh, that's yeah, pretty sure. funny. <laughs> he's supposedly a really cool guy, actually. I have heard that, yeah. I had a friend that worked with him, and he said it was actually kind of, kind of sad because how hard he was on himself on set with his acting. Really? Yeah. Oh, he wow. He was like kind of beating himself up over how good of a job he was doing. Yeah. But just a very great guy with cast and crew, like super uh, generous and just by all accounts a great dude. That makes me happy to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, another one of my favorite shots is uh, on their long night out when uh, she has the pink wig and just puts her head, she's smoking a cigarette and puts her head on his shoulder. Yeah. And then My Bloody Valentine kicks in. Such a great music cue. And they're in the cab again. Yeah. Going through like the fluorescent streets. Yeah. Just so gorgeous. Yeah. Well, yeah. So My Bloody Valentine, one of my favorite bands. Yeah. And Kevin Shields of My Bloody Valentine did a few songs for the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then that My Bloody Valentine song is in there as well. But yeah. uh, Pretty awesome to be able to get Kevin Shields to yeah. do some of the music for your movie. Well, her soundtracks are always great. Oh, yes. Her use of music is just, you know, this her is, music cues are awesome. This is probably my favorite soundtrack of hers. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
the other favorite shot is the uh, the golf scene. Yes, yeah, so gorgeous. So every time I watch that scene, I'm like, that has to be like a, some fake screen of Mount Fuji in the back. It looks so it's so, so perfectly gorgeous framed, yeah. that it looks fake. Uh-huh. It looks like a like a Top Golf thing where they yeah. just digitally project <laughs> right. something into the distance. You're playing Mount Fuji. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's a great shot, and obviously. Bill Murray in real life is an avid golfer. Yeah, he's got a nice swing. I think he might have, this might not be true, but he might have said like, please let me do some golfing in the movie. Oh, really? I I could see that. I could see that, yeah. And so he does that. And then you see him in his hotel room at one point just putting Uh into like a a cup, you know, and he... Yeah, yeah. uh, So, yeah. Um, And those like, again, it's another scene that doesn't really advance anything, but it just evokes a feeling again out in this great wide open place all by himself he's not playing golf with three other people like usually do yeah you see nothing but him and this like quiet nature around him yeah it's really lovely mm-hmm. well maybe let's talk some more about the bedroom scene so it's it's mm. well first of all their big night out is great yes um, and that felt like a the, the paint gun thing yeah that felt like something that had happened before because that would be a weird thing to just make up and write it's very oddly specific yeah you know way like she wasn't like, oh, and then these guys come in with paint guns and start shooting. Yeah. And they run down the street. And I, I I don't quite understand if that's... Was that in the script? No way. I think it is, actually. Oh, really? I want to say it is. It's like some kind of like fluorescent BB gun or something. Okay. Uh, but I don't know if... I don't know what the, the context of if that's like a thing or if it's meant to just be like, we're right. just having fun and we're just... I don't know how threatening that situation is meant to be. I know. It's never really clear to me. Yeah, I think that that had to have happened to someone that she knew. I think so. It feels like a strange thing to make up. Yeah, absolutely. Out of whole cloth. (laughs) But uh, they have their big night out and then they end up, you know, back at the hotel. He carries her to bed Mm -hmm. and um, that's when they, like that next six minutes is sort of the movie when they're talking about being stuck in their relationships and he's talking about marriage and uh, he has that great line, um, the more you know who you are and what you want, the less you let things upset you. Yeah, and that's such a thing that can only come with age. And that, I, I again going back to the script, some of, some of the lines they say in that scene mm-hmm. are directly from the script. But that line and a lot of the other ones are not in the script. Yeah. Clearly, just Bill Murray. That line was not. That line was not, or oh, maybe some variation of it right. is. But uh, and actually, in some interview, they said that that scene in particular took a long time to get right. Mm-hmm. They shot it, they were trying to shoot it one night and they just couldn't nail it and they actually yeah. came back on a different night and were able to work it out. Wow. Yeah. Um, huh. But yeah, and, and uh, the line about, you know, kids being the most delightful thing oh, in the God. world and you want to be with them. It's so beautiful. Can't take it. But at the same time, it's it's weird because he says that and yet he's, he's also willfully yeah. not being with his family and so it's 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 kind of sad it's sort of like he's having this realization mm-hmm. but he's also not doing the thing he should be doing in a yeah. sense and and his wife i mean she's just saying the most brutal brutal things like to wound him because mm-hmm. she's mad she's lashing out Rightfully like so. they're they you know he they're used to you not being around anyway or <laughs> something like that yeah Whew, tough stuff yeah and and it is interesting that like it is you love this character. He's so great and everything, but like, you, how can you not feel for his wife? Yeah. Who you never see and you right. only hear this voice, like kind of, uh, she, the way she pops up throughout the script, 
Mm-hmm. It's like so strategic. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to go back and look at like what immediately precedes each moment where you hear from her, you know? Yeah. One Probably the my favorite of the, the conversations he has is when he's in the uh, the sauna or the pool or the sauna mm-hmm. and that's where he's saying the lines about he wants to eat Japanese food and she's like, yeah. why don't you stay there? You can yeah. eat it every day. Right. And then he sort of hangs up and then he just lowers himself lower yeah, and lower in the into, the, into the hot tub. I love that part. Yeah. It's just such a great visual visual symbolism of how he's feeling in that moment. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I wrote that same thing down. It, it sort of uh, evokes the uh, the Rushmore scene where at the pool party. Oh, yeah. When he's just like gets up and does the cannonball and just kind of sinks down and floats <laughs> down. It's a similar character in some ways. Yeah, I think so. Kind of that midlife crisis. Uh, the third act is when – the third act is th- when things get really depressing. That is with the, the hot tub. I think it's sort of that last half hour. Everything just sort of starts to close in, the reality. Mm-hmm. Like the trip is winding down for both of them. Um, and it, it just – that's when he sleeps with a lounge singer. Like all the bad things start to kind of happen in that last half hour. Yeah. And, you know, you say third act, but I think that's in this movie a very loose yeah. term because it's it's a really, a, in some ways, a somewhat plotless, yeah, yeah. Uh, loose film that doesn't adhere to what we think of as like sure. a three act structure. But, yeah. But yeah, everything, it's kind of, you slowly feel reality starting to set back in with, yeah. you know, I'm leaving tomorrow. Bill Murray's leaving the next day, and uh, Scarlett Johansson is pres- presumably staying a little bit longer yeah. with her husband in in Japan. And so it's just, yeah, it's very melancholy. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone's had that feeling of that, uh, whether it's a vacation or summer camp or something, like you're so in it when you're in it. And then like the saddest day or like is like those last couple of days – like the last full day yeah. is always the saddest day. Not even the departure day. Right. Because you're trying to have fun, but you're like, uh, this is all going to end. Yeah. Like soon. And I think that's also what's great about the movie is sort of the awareness and acceptance of the fact that our time together is ending. Mm-hmm. And let's be okay with that. Yeah. Let's not exchange phone numbers. Let's right. not try to keep this thing going. Yeah, but yeah. We came together, we both really got something out of this, and now we're going back to our lives. And that's okay. And it's okay to sort of have something, hold it tightly, and then be be willing to let it go. If you love something, set it free. <laughs> it's true, though. Very true, yeah. It's so trite and corny yeah. uh, and on a poster everywhere, but <laughs> it is true. Yeah. Uh, you can't hold something too tightly like that you will choke the life out of it. Absolutely. Uh, and, then, and then at the end, he has. there's that great part where he's going to leave – and um, that American woman yeah. comes up like, oh, and what are you doing here? And he's just like, he's looking right through her at ScarJo mm-hmm. in the background. Yeah. And he basically is just like, I, you know, I got to go or whatever. Yeah. And this 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 attractive American woman who yeah. he could sleep with her sure. so fast if he wanted to. Yeah. She's clearly into him. Yeah. But he's just not on. He's yeah. He sees right through her. <laughs> yeah. I don't even think he heard like he just heard wah, 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 wah in his head. <laughs> And uh, he wants to go talk to her, and he does. And then, you know, you get that great ending, which is is sort of a variation of a trope, like stop the car. Yeah. You know, and he, you know, but he doesn't run after he walks. Yeah. Like everything is slightly different than the usual trope of that scene. 
and then they, you know, what is here we go. What does he say? Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's, I, yeah, I was, my notes has a section about the whisper. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because it's um, there are a lot of theories. Um, people have slowed it down on the internet and tried yep. to isolate I it. I watched those. Yeah, and I kind of was almost like I don't even know if I want to hear the theories. Yeah, I mean, like I like the mystery of it. I'll preface yeah my response by saying that I don't think we need to hear it, and mm-hmm. I think that's sort of like a the wrong way to approach a movie as like a puzzle to be solved, and that. It's whatever you want it to be. Or let let them have their moment. I love uh, Roger Ebert's review of the movie. He had a great line about that whisper at the end where uh-huh. he said, um, quote, we shouldn't be allowed to hear it. It's between them. And by this point in the movie, they've become real enough to deserve their privacy. Wow. Which is a really nice way to put it. Yeah. All that being said, though, right. <laughs> it is fun to speculate. <laughs> All right. So if you don't want to hear any of this, go ahead and just uh, turn it off. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So yeah. let, let's let's talk. What is the leading? I, I think I know what it is, but what did you see is a leading theory? The leading theory, especially based on a YouTube video where right. they slowed it down and uh-huh. adjusted the sound mix <laughs> and all this stuff, is that he's he's whispering something like, "I might be getting this wrong, but 
I have to go right now, yeah. but I'm not going to let that come between us, okay? Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I saw, which is great and yeah. fitting and beautiful. I disagree with that. Okay, that, <laughs> that interpret- it's great and beautiful? Or? No, 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 I, I, oh, okay. I disagree with that, uh, that that's what he's saying. Okay. If I am actually listening closely and trying to interpret based on the little sounds you can hear, uh-huh. what I am hearing <laughs> is... Paul is dead. <laughs> <laughs> the walrus was Paul. Uh, I can't make out the like first half of the sentence, but the ending to me, the last kind of part of the sentence to me sounds something like he's saying, I want you to go back up there and tell him that you love him. Okay. Oh, And wow. so to me, which again, fits, which fits to me that what he's telling her is go back up there, tell him, meaning her husband that yeah, you love yeah, him. Yeah. He's sort of giving her advice on saying, don't give up on your marriage. Right. Try to make it work as best you can, which I think... Like, almost like it's too late for me. Yeah. Because I feel like it is. If we're going to talk about (laughs) the next week after this, Mm -hmm. um, like, he may go home and get a divorce. Yeah. But she will try harder at her marriage. Yeah. I don't feel like they do the same thing. I agree. After this. So... Again, that's just me sort of trying to listen closely and yeah. what I hear. Uh, people, you may disagree with me. People may disagree. But I, I, I do like the sentiment that he's not telling her something of like, you know, let's find a way to keep in touch or let's cut, try to keep our thing going. But he sort right. of gives her some advice on how to maybe fix her marriage. Wow. Which I think is a nice sentiment. Yeah. but And, and there is a know. bit of a mentor quality to their relationship in some ways, like he gives her little bits of advice here and there. Sure, yeah. Like father-daughter. That's why the whole sexuality of it is is a big part of the movie, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, he touches her foot. He kisses her. Uh, so much in one little touch. On the lips. Yeah, yeah. You know, they the had that, that kiss, but again, it, it wasn't like the, uh, some sexually charged kiss. It almost just feels like they... And this sounds so creepy. I don't know if I should say it. <laughs> it almost feels like they just wanted to see what each other, like, uh, what their lips felt like on each other's mouths. Yeah, and and maybe it's just it's to like know. We need to give some gesture of acknowledgement. Yeah, that's more than just like a polite handshake. Yeah, when you've shared so much with somebody. I know. It's it's so like, and I think that speaks to how great. The movie is if you can sit down and have a really good conversation with someone about the sexual politics of this movie yeah, and what it means and what's going on there. That means she wasn't just like, well, this is pretty black and white. Go digest it easily. Yeah. You know, this is a movie that you got to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's I so think, great. You know, the fact that if this movie were directed by a man, mm-hmm. it would feel very different. And Sofia Coppola, I think a lot of her films come from what I would call something like a very feminine point of view. Mm-hmm. Th- there's just something uh, unique you get from uh, a director who's a woman, yeah. basically. Yeah. Uh, but especially Sofia Coppola, who's such an artist and such a uh, a master of subtlety. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Virgin Suicides, one of my faves. Yeah. I I actually, I rewatched Marie Antoinette recently. I love that movie. And, that when I first saw it, I was kind of like, I don't know how I feel about this, but yeah. 
the more time goes on, the more I love it. It's ballsy. It's so ballsy. It almost begs it begs you to hate it, sort of. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you just can't. And it's so great. And it's, you know, the anachronistic soundtrack. Yeah, with like, I just think it so works. Yeah, you it know? works really well. That's another one I'd like to see again. Yeah, it's great. It holds up. Uh, and speaking of soundtrack, um, you know, they have that moment. And then Just Like Honey kicks oh in. Gosh. Jesus yeah. and Mary Chain. What a great She's song. just like speaking our language here with My Bloody Valentine, Jesus and Mary Chain, this sort of droney, distorted thing. It's just so appropriate for this movie. Kind of dreamy. Yeah. It, it continues that sort of feeling, that dreaminess. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a perfect sound cue. I wish I could, I wish I had more to say other than it's perfect. I know. know? It, yeah. I feel like a dummy sometimes like, oh man, that's fucking great. But it kind of just was. Yeah. It was so perfect. Yeah. Uh, and that's just uh, when it, when a movie can nail a music cue, that just elevates everything. And that's what I love about movies is it's, it's so many art forms combined. Mm-hmm. You know, like the visual aesthetics of this movie is so beautiful, and the acting is so great, and the mm-hmm. dialogue is so subtle. I think and yeah. uh, can interpret it in many ways. And then you have this great soundtrack, just kind of all came together. And I think yeah, what what's great about Sofia Coppola is I think for her. The, in some ways, the style mm-hmm. is the substance. You know, some people say a movie is all style and no substance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's a valid criticism of, of movies. Yeah. But for Coppola, like, they're so intertwined that you can't separate the two. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like Wes Anderson, yeah. where some people knock Wes Anderson for his very sure. unique <laughs> yeah. visual aesthetic. Uh, that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> right? But for me, for most of his movies, mm-hmm. I feel like that aesthetic is inextricably linked to mm-hmm. the substance of the movie. Like he's making an argument through the visuals just mm-hmm. as much as he is the writing or the the performances or the characters or whatever. And I think yeah. Coppola does that as well. Yeah. I, I mean, I know Wes Anderson gets knocked too for not breaking out of that, but I, I, I hope he does every single movie of his entire career. I hope is a Wes Anderson-y Wes Anderson movie. I mean, I don't want to see him do anything different. They're great. Say what you will, but you can always tell a Wes Anderson movie from the first, from any shot, from any shot in his shot. movie. Yeah. A few of these shots, too, are, are framed in such a way, too, that it sort of evokes him. But, he, I mean, he didn't invent the perfectly symmetrical wide-angle shot. No, yeah. He's, he's made it his own, but it's it would be unfair for me to say, like, she's doing a Wes Anderson shot. No, I I, I would say she's doing a Sofia Coppola yeah, shot, you know. Exactly. And I, that does remind me, I do want to just briefly touch on the... Uh, the visuals. So yeah. the director of photography was Lance Accord. Yeah, she's worked with him a lot, right? She's worked with him. She worked with him on uh, Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. And then he's shot actually some of Spike Jones's movies. Oh, so he yeah. did uh, Being John Malkovich, right. adaptation, Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, wow. Very, I love his stuff. Uh-huh. And then this this is maybe my favorite of his movies. But uh, the movie is shot in, in some ways in a very sort of documentary style. Mm-hmm. And they didn't use a lot of film lighting in the movie. It was sort of a minimal lighting setup. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, almost all of the exteriors, even the nighttime exteriors, they didn't use any lighting. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's something you don't really do in movies. Right. But they wanted to sort of be a, a crew with a, a small footprint. Mm-hmm. And also because Tokyo is such a bright city with all the neon. Yeah. You can film in the middle of the night and still yeah. have plenty of light to get a good exposure on your camera. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the camera, like, I don't remember a, are there any dolly shots in this movie? I don't think so. Feels like it's either locked down or handheld. Yeah. But I don't remember seeing any tracking shots. There may not be any. I don't think so. 
That'd yeah. be pretty ballsy to be like, no, there's not going to be a dolly on this set. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had a friend who worked on it. No way. Yeah. Uh, wardrobe. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. I've got I've got some stories. Maybe I'll tell you off. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. But <laughs> off uh, Mike. Yeah. The the so that's interesting though. The the crew was mostly a Japanese crew aside from a lot of the key positions. Uh huh. And so that kind of made the production difficult because mm-hmm. Sofia Coppola would say something and mm-hmm. then she'd have somebody translate it to the right. crew. And so it was kind of a slower way of working. Yeah. But uh, let's see. What else about the visuals? Um, oh, this is interesting. So uh, if you have the DVD or the Blu-ray, there's mm-hmm. a great behind-the-scenes documentary. Have you oh, seen it? no. So it's called Lost in, Lost on Location. Mm-hmm. It was filmed by Spike Jones, her husband at the time. <laughs> so he was there yeah. while she was working. And uh, it's just shot on like, it looks like just like a DV camera, mini DV camera. I wonder if he was like, man, Giovanni's great. That guy's hysterical. <laughs> what a she, great character. Yeah. But uh, it's one of my favorite behind the scenes documentaries because it's not the usual behind the scenes where it's just everybody being like, Oh, it's so great to work on this mm. movie. Sophia is so great. It's very fly on the wall, just capturing moments of the production. Yeah. And so some of the things you see is that they actually shoot in a lot of the locations without permits, uh-huh. which, you know, like yeah, if you want to film gun. somewhere, you have to get permission from the restaurant owner. Or, right. But a lot of the exteriors of Tokyo, they would just go out, run and gun. Right. Uh, in particular, the Shibuya Crossing, which is that gigantic intersection. Uh-huh where you see that dinosaur projected on, yeah, yeah. on the video screen. Yeah, it's a great shot. Uh, Scarlett Johansson crosses the square, and they just took the camera out, didn't get a permit, were hoping not to get caught by the police. Right. And they just would film with the small film camera, capture those shots, and they also at one point went up to a Starbucks and, like, pretended to order coffee uh-huh. and then stuck the camera in, like, the windowsill to get, like, a high point of view oh, shot. Oh, really? Yeah. And they, they got it. And, um, I wonder about the arcade, too, because that felt very much like, yeah. let's just get a camera and walk around. It could have been. And also and maybe take a handful of releases <laughs> and see if we can get these kids to sign sign off. And also on the subway, when Scarlett Johansson's on the subway, uh-huh. those they didn't get permits for. Yeah. And they were very nervous. They talk about it, about the police coming. And I uh-huh. think for the most part, they pulled it off, which is wow. just something that, you know, especially on on movies that aren't sort of micro-budget films. Yeah. You know, this movie was made up for, I think, $4 million, which is a small budget. Yeah. But it's it's a legit production. And uh-huh. to just be willing to sort of be ballsy and say, we're just right. going to capture this and not worry about permits or anything, is a, it's a really bold move. Yeah, and, and bold in that, um, I think that carries over to the to the, to the work, like that sort of uh, indie guerrilla spirit mm-hmm. of running and gunning and getting what you can. Like, that's you've done stuff like that. That's, an, that's an exciting feeling. Yeah, it's scary. As a filmmaker. It's scary but exciting because that adrenaline infuses itself though through the the work, I think. Yeah, like uh in a a while back I I did something similar on Marta, uh-huh. which for those of you who don't live in Atlanta, Marta's our subway yeah. here in Atlanta where we took a little camera and tried to steal some shots and we got them. At one point some a Marta guard asked us. Right. You guys aren't filming, are you? And we were like, "No, we're just we're we're taking our equipment somewhere." <laughs> right. It used to be a lot easier to oh, do that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I was in my uh, late 20s, we shot stuff all over town and you could just go into a restaurant and be like, hey, man, we're we're doing this like cool little project. You mind mm-hmm. if and we didn't have lights and stuff? It was just like a camera and a tripod. Mm-hmm. And uh, we shot in restaurants. We shot all over the place. It's just people are way more savvy now, now that there's a lot of film work going on. Yeah. Uh, about like having their hand out. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, oh, sure, you can shoot here. For five grand. Right. Per day. Yeah, minimum. Yeah, I've had those conversations <laughs> with trying to film because. Uh, well, you're it, you're making a movie, right? I am. Yeah, 
You want to talk about that? I will briefly. Okay. <laughs> um, only Actually, only as it relates to Lost in Translation, because Sofia Coppola is a big inspiration for me. Yeah. And in the movie uh, I'm making, which is in post-production right now, it's a feature, my uh-huh. first feature, but uh, a lot of there's a lot of things that were inspired by Sofia Coppola and in particular Lost in Translation, yeah. especially visually. Uh-huh. Um, I have one scene where it's two characters sitting at a kitchen table, two characters who don't know each other very well, mm-hmm. and they're sort of having a meal together right. for the first time. And they're having this sort of conversation where they're just getting to know each other. And I basically copied the scene from Lost in Translation at the at the bar where uh-huh. Bob and Charlotte have their first conversation. Yeah. So it's like a straight on two shot of them. Uh-huh. That, I love that shot too. Yeah. And in that movie, it's great because you can see Tokyo out, out the window. Yeah. In the and there's a distance between them. Yeah. A very like noticeable, like yeah. they're both on the edges of the frame. Uh-huh. And then at some point it cuts into sort of over the shoulder close-ups. Right. Very shallow focus, very sort of intimate as they're kind of... There, there's a connection being made there, mm-hmm. and I totally copied that structure for the scene in my movie. That's what I you do, man. Had that straight on shot, and you then borrowed very, it. I borrowed it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the good ones borrow, the great ones steal, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, she she probably borrowed that from someone else. Yeah. And that's part of it. The cinematic language, it's yeah, open to everyone. So yeah, that's all I'll say about my think. All but, right, uh, how's it yeah. looking? Good. Yeah, you happy, you happy with it? I'm I'm happy with it. It's in. Uh, we're doing the final sound mix and color correction now. So awesome, man. Should be done. Imminently. I can't wait. Thank you. Uh, you got anything else on this? No, I think we covered everything I, I wanted to cover. Cool, man. We're going to do this again. You didn't. You were nervous about this. I was. You did great. Oh, thank you. So uh, maybe we'll make this part of the uh, ongoing filmmaker series. Yeah. You and Casey, y'all are still roommates, right? We are, yeah. You're uh, the superstars of this show now. <laughs> Casey is, uh, I think, the master, though. I, I hope I can be as good on Dude, the mic as you Casey. You guys both. Like, it's so much fun to sit and talk movies with you guys. So we'll uh, we'll do this again. Maybe you and I should go through Sofia Coppola's uh, filmography. That would be fun. Should we do that? Yeah, I'd be down to do that. All right, dude, done. Let's do it. We'll done. do uh, Virgin Suicides. Ooh, I haven't watched that in a long time. Yeah, we'll go back to the beginning. Emily's going to be so mad. <laughs> you like, I wanted to be your Sophia couple of person. <laughs> We're doing what uh, uh, Emily and I are going to do Alexander Payne, though. Oh, nice. We're going to go through his his career yeah, uh, one at a time. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a big fan of. Yeah, well, I talk about the 100% Club, and he's in it, and uh, Sophia Coppola's in it to me. What's Oh, just movies you love everything they've done? M- movies like they've never made a bad movie. Right. Um, Coen Brothers are almost there. The Lady Killers just edges them out. <laughs> They're the 95% club. They're still batting pretty well, though. No, trust me. Considering how many they've made. Yeah, they're out there. But um, Coen Brothers would be fun to do as well. Yeah, and this show has morphed and become its sort of own thing where we can just kind of play around and do fun stuff like this. So Cool. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. This is fun. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that. I sure did. That was another good movie talk. It's no surprise that Paul and Casey are roommates, everyone. Can you imagine those two sitting around rapping about film late night on a Saturday? Man, to be young. Must be great. Uh, Paul had great insight. He was nervous, and that was adorable. I knew he was going to do a good job. Uh, And he did. He did great, so much so that as you heard it, I'm going to have Paul back in, and we're going to talk about more Sofia Coppola films in the future. He and Casey have become uh, my little go-to cinephiles here on staff. And they do a great job, so I'm going to keep having these guys on. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something about the movie and uh, enjoyed our insight on it. And until next time, don't stay holed up in that luxury hotel. Get out and see the world. 
Movie Crush is produced, engineered, edited, and soundtracked by Noel Brown and Ramsey Yunt at HowStuffWorks Studios, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.